Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. Well, God, you are awesome. Thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity to come together and to just learn more about your love for us. And I just pray that everything I say will be, uh, you know, inspired by you and not of me. And we just thank you for this day. You're awesome, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems like it's been an eternity since the last time I put out a podcast. But uh, today we're going to be looking at the scriptures that have been used to show that God is sovereign. And this is part two of this series. It's going to kind of end up being a four or five part series. I hadn't really planned on it being that big, but it just, you know, the more and more scriptures I come across, because again, we're going to be looking at it from the viewpoint of, you know, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. And and I do believe God is sovereign. But what we're going to be looking at is some of the scriptures that have been used over time to teach a doctrine that I don't believe is true. And I'm referring to that as the extreme sovereignty of God. So if you haven't listened to part one of this series, go back and listen to it. I just want to encourage you to do that because it'll help to kind of balance out you know, what we're going to be going through today. But just to recap, the purpose behind studying the sovereignty of God is for us to better understand God's love, His character, His grace, His mercy, and ultimately, from what we learn, my expectation is that it'll help to set us free from some of the misconceptions we have about God. You know, there's freedom in learning that God's not the one responsible for all the terrible things in this world that we encounter or people we know encounter, like rape and murder and sickness and destruction, you know, you name it. All those terrible things that we wouldn't wish on anybody we love, those things aren't from God. And some of you may be thinking, well, I don't. I never believed that those things were from God in the first place. You know, the rape, murder, sickness, and destruction. And what I'd just like to encourage you to do is just to think about, like, what do you believe? And, and why do you believe it? And what I'm not asking you to think about is, what does so-and-so believe about this topic? You know, I, I understand you know, we have we can have people that we look up to, maybe people that we've sat under and we've listened to and we've learned from. But I want to tell you that when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you, what did your pastor know or what did your parents know or your grandparents know or your spouse? He's not going to ask you what they knew. <laughs> He's going to, you know, it's going to be important what you knew about the word. So I just want you to think about what do you what do you actually believe? Because a large portion of the church world believes that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, that God sovereignly controls everything that happens in this life, good or bad, that all things happen for a reason, that God allows bad things to happen to us to teach us something, you know, to teach us a lesson, that sickness and disease is actually a blessing from God, and that God has zero limitations. And to clarify, just kind of as I said to start, I absolutely believe that God is sovereign, okay? Just not in the popular, quote-unquote popular way that it's been taught over time. And let me clarify the clarification. I don't really care about what I think to be true. I only care about what the Word actually says. You know, I've been around some kind of influential people in my lifetime, some in the sporting world, uh, just in some different areas, business-related and different things. You know, there would have been a time where I would have really got caught up into the hoopla, if you will, of who they were because they were established in this business realm or this sports realm or whatever the case may be, and kind of getting caught up in the hype of who they are. <laughs> but really, I just don't value people like that anymore. And, and, and I value, I place a value on people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm trying to say is like, you know, you could be the most successful person in the world in business. And really, and, and it's easy to say this, but I'm just sharing with you that where my heart is at, like, you know, that's good for you, but I don't really care about that. You know what I care about <laughs> is what do you know about the word? You could be the winningest coach in some sports history, but you know what about that person? They have a family and they have stuff going on outside of their sports job you know they they who knows they could be really successful in a certain area but they their own family doesn't even want to be around them they hate them they've gone through 15 divorces people don't trust them outside of their arena that they're really good at now am i saying that we can't glean some things from them yes we could you know in certain areas but what i'm trying to say is like <laughs> I don't think we should put any man on a platform or woman. What should we value in them? 
what they know about the word. <laughs> because it doesn't matter how successful you are or how important you or someone else thinks you are. You know, when something hits the fan, when, when, when tragedy happens in your life, what do you hold to? You know, do you hold to the word? Do you get shaken and broken down and mentally just disabled because of the things that happen in this world? And I'm not saying that we, you know, <laughs> that we can't have moments where something happens and it, and it kind of sets us back for a moment. But then in that moment, what do we cling to? Do we cling to the word? Or do we cling to all the hype and our career goals and all the thing and our successes and all that stuff? Because, you know, I, I don't think there's too many people on their deathbeds that have said, man, I just wish I would have gained another $45 million or, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. What do they, what do they think about when they're on their deathbed? I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I wouldn't have hurt that person. I would have, wish I would have told them that I was sorry or that I forgave them or whatever the case may be. And so back to kind of what I'm saying is that I don't place value on, and this is just me, I'm not saying you have to be this way, but I just don't place value on a lot of things a lot of people do. And that doesn't make me better than anybody else. But all I'm trying to say is that I place value on the word and what someone else knows about the word. I think that's more important than anything else that there is. So again, back to the sovereignty of God. Here's what I believe. I believe that yes, God is sovereign. But when I say sovereign, I mean that God is above all. He's supreme. He's first in rank. He's independent. He knows the end from the beginning. Absolutely. Yes, God is sovereign. And those, a lot of those words that I just used here are literally from the dictionary. But there's a difference in those definitions I just gave and those that I gave a little bit before. And that's why I've entitled this type of doctrine as the extreme sovereignty of God doctrine. So as we get started, I just like to point out that in no way, shape, or form do I think that I have an explanation for every single scripture in the Bible on this topic. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay, My goal is to cover as many of them as possible so that we can really get an idea of what the Bible says about his sovereignty. And will you find more on this subject You know, than what I cover? Yes. Will I? You know, Down the road? Yeah, it's, it's a big book. The Bible's a big book. But I believe if you'll listen along, We'll cover a good portion of the ones you've probably heard before, and hopefully we'll be able to clear up some of the misconceptions we have. Now, I have no intention to just highlight the ones that lean towards the way I believe and not talk about the ones that are difficult for me to explain. So today, let's start off with a scripture where I personally have no idea what it means. <laughs> so first, we're going to look at three scriptures in the book of Jeremiah where they're basically saying the same thing, but again... I don't really have any idea what they're saying. So the first one is in Jeremiah 19.5. It says, They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither it came into my mind. So here we can see an example where people purposely built high places or altars to burn sacrifices to their gods, small g, not God Almighty, but to God's. And it just so happened that the sacrifices in this situation that they planned on making or giving were their own kids. Okay, that's crazy. But really, <laughs> what's happening now? It's the same thing. You know, the United States, I'm, I live in the U.S., has given the ability for people to just have abortions whenever they want. And even to the point where in some states, I think New York has it where like they can even... And, and I don't know if I'm exactly right, but California or New York, I believe that they can actually have the child and up to a certain amount of days or hours or whatever after the child has literally been born, choose whether or not they want to keep it. You know, it's just crazy. It's murder. That's what it is. And I'm not against the people. If you've had an abortion, I'm not against you. God loves you. Okay. And your child, <laughs> since they were conceived, they're in his arms, okay? So that's the peace of mind. If it's bothering you about a decision you made back when, you don't have to beat yourself up about it, okay? That child is in God's presence, and that child is not mad at you. You gave him life, and although you chose not to keep him, you don't have to beat yourself up about it because you know what? God's already forgiven you for that. <laughs> God, and I'm not laughing as in like, I'm laughing at you. I'm, I'm just giggling because it's so awesome because I just think back of all the stupid crap I've done in my life and and 
the sin of abortion, because it is a sin, all right, is is no higher up on the scale than me talking bad about an uh, a fellow employee or or my wife or some person I hate. It's the same thing because what does the word say? If you talk bad about your, if you hate your brother, it's like you've, it, it's not like it, it, you've committed murder and, and it's the same thing. So God has already forgiven you of that sin. And if, and if you don't believe that to be true, because when Jesus died, all sin was future sin. So if God didn't forgive you of that sin, well, I, I'm sorry, but he's not going to come down from heaven and be crucified again. He was murdered and crucified one time for all sin. And that included the sins that you have already committed. And that includes the sins that you still have yet to commit. <laughs> and me too. And I'm not really trying to get too carried away with this, but if someone were wanting to really justify having an abortion just because they chose not to, they just didn't want a baby and they just had sex and and got pregnant and eh, I'm just going to have an abortion and kill it. Well, it's kind of like robbing a bank and then after you get caught and you go stand before the judge for him to sentence you to a certain amount of time in prison for the crime you committed, you're just saying, eh, no, I don't really want it. You know, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so back to Jeremiah 19.5. But what I'd like to point out is that it says, which I commanded not. Okay, and that's not the primary reason why we're looking at this verse, but I just want to point out what that says to me is that this is showing that this wasn't God's will and he didn't want this to happen. But the main reason we're looking at this scripture is because it also says, neither came it into my mind. And in my mind is God's mind. So here God is saying that what these people did didn't come across his mind. And what I believe that is saying is that he never thought they'd do a thing like that. <laughs> I'll touch more on that here shortly. Next one is Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-five, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So again, we see the same thing here as in the previous verse. It says, which I commanded them not. So I take from that, this wasn't God's will. Then it says, neither came it into my mind. So what didn't come into God's mind? That they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And here's a similar third example of the previous two verses. Jeremiah 7.31 and they have built the high places of Tophet, or however that's pronounced, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. So here we see three times where it said, which I did not command. And again, I take from that, that this wasn't God's will for them to sacrifice their own children. Okay. But if we believe that everything God wants to happen, and again, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. If we believe that everything God wants to happen happens, then why would God basically say, I had nothing to do with this? <laughs> However, like I mentioned, these are scriptures that I don't understand. And this is why. However, the main reason we're using these three verses is because of the phrase, it didn't come into God's mind. Now, this could mean that it simply never even crossed God's mind, that man would sacrifice their own kids. I've heard one pastor try to explain this verse by saying, and I'm not saying he's wrong. I, like I said, I don't know. But he says, God has the ability to know the future, but these scriptures show he doesn't always exercise that ability because he's told us to think on the good and the lovely and the pure and that he may have been doing just that and he wasn't thinking about man doing something like this. Now, I don't know. Maybe another option is that it's kind of like a, I don't know, not rhetorical statement, but like, he's just like, I just never thought they would do that. But he, he does know about it. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what it means. And I, I'm not trying to get too carried away or, you know, trying to make this all super deep about those three scriptures. I'm simply trying to point out that here are three different verses where God says he didn't know or think about something that happened. And that leads us into the next thing I want to talk about. There's a basic principle for establishing Bible doctrine, okay? And we'll need to keep this in mind as we continue on discussing what I've entitled the extreme sovereignty of God. In the Old Testament, it talks in several places about how there must be at least two or three witnesses and how it's typically applied 
is in the order to bring a charge against another person, you know, back in, uh, oh, in the, in the law days, Moses days and that sort of thing. So again, in order to bring a charge against someone, you know, to say that they committed adultery or they did this or they did that, you know, one person just couldn't stand up and say they did it. They had to have two or three witnesses. But the way that this applies in the new covenant is that we must have two or three supporting scriptures and those you know, scriptures being in place of the witnesses in order to establish a doctrine as a truth of God's word. So in this situation, we do see three scriptures saying that things that happened on earth were not things that God thought would happen. So if we just looked at that, we would say, well, then does God really know all things that happened? Does he know everything? I mean, there's three scriptures. Well, here's some other scriptures I want to show you. In Matthew 10, 30, and this is Jesus speaking, it says, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Revelation 1, 8, and this is Jesus speaking again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And again, we're talking about, we're discussing, does God know everything that happens? Because if you go back and you listen to the first part in this series, that Revelation 1.8, that Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that's been tried to use to say everything that happens is because of God wills it that way or you know, he makes everything happen because he's the Alpha and the Omega. And that's not what that verse is saying. All it's saying is that he is the beginning. He is the end. That doesn't say that everything that's happened in between was because he made it happen that way or that he wanted it to happen that way. Okay, in these verses that we just looked at in Jeremiah, it says, I commanded not. (laughs) Like, I didn't want this to happen. So the next one, Psalm 139, verses two through four. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So yeah, this again, we're talking about does God know everything that happens? In this verse, yeah, it's pretty clear he does. Isaiah 42 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. <laughs> Ezekiel eleven five. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak. Thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. So God is saying, I know the things that you're going to think them before you even do. Daniel 2, 28. But there is a God. Now, back to that scripture. That doesn't mean God puts every thought in your mind. Okay, the enemy puts thoughts in our mind. And who's the enemy? It's Satan. He brings thoughts into our mind. And just because a thought comes into your mind doesn't mean it's your thought. Okay, it's the enemy trying to put it in your mind. You don't have to run with it. Okay, you can reject it. You can just switch your line of thinking. You can tell the devil to shut up and just move forward. You don't have to spend 15 hours rebuking the devil and, you know, sackcloth and ashes thinking, oh, I thought this terrible thought. No, it wasn't your thought. The enemy put that thought in your head and you can just reject it in a matter of seconds and just keep moving forward. Daniel 2, 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days? Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. So again, here we see it saying what will be in the latter days, that God knows what will be in the latter days. Acts three eighteen, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Psalm 147, 5. God is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Acts fifteen eighteen, known to God from eternity are all his works. So here we see 11 other scriptures that support that God has all knowledge. And I'm certain that there are more. I've only just looked up 11 of them. But what about the three scriptures that clearly say that what man did by burning their own children to a false God and that that never came into God's mind that they would do something like that? What about that? 
Is that enough to say that God is not all-knowing? The Word tells us, just like the Old Testament witnesses, that two or three scriptures must be used to establish doctrine. But on the other side of that, here we just looked at 11 scriptures that clearly show that God is all-knowing. So why am I bringing this up? Because yes, I agree there are scriptures that could be taken and used to say that everything that God wills to happen, happens. That God allows everything to happen that happens. That all things happen for a reason. So on and so forth. But what we need to consider is, does it line up with the Bible as a whole with what's been made available to us in the New Covenant? Because like I shared, I don't know the meaning of those three scriptures in Jeremiah. However, when we put those three verses up against the 11 plus, and, and I say 11 plus because I'm sure there's more than 11 that we just used, I would say that those 11 tip the scale. So now, I believe the entire Bible makes complete and total sense. Just because I don't know what something means doesn't mean it doesn't come together. I don't believe there's a single verse in the Bible that contradicts itself. What I'm saying is I don't know what those three scriptures in Jeremiah mean. That's all. But even within those three verses where it talks about how those things didn't come into God's mind, it did say that God didn't command it to happen and so that it, it wasn't his will. So this just makes me think about the story of Job. And again, I went over the book of Job in my series entitled The Sovereignty of God. I believe it was the fifth one. But in Job 2.3, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And real quick, God wasn't giving Satan permission to go and wreck Job's life in either that verse or when he says something like it in chapter 1, verse 8. God was simply bragging to Satan about Job. So in verse 3b, we'll continue on with it. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you, talking of Satan, incited me, God, against him to destroy him without cause. So God's saying clearly that this wasn't from him. Satan got Job to think all the calamity in his life was from God, but it was from Satan. So just Satan tricked him. Again, it says, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And just like how the terrible things that happened to Job weren't from God, it wasn't God's will for these people in Jeremiah to sacrifice their children to false gods. So next I'd like to look at whether or not God has any limitations, because that's one of the things that I brought up that gets used in the extreme sovereignty of God, that God has no limitations. Can God do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it? That's the question. So to lead up into this topic, we're going to take a, a short detour to look at prophecy, which will help us to better understand the idea of whether or not God has any limitations. And actually, out of the grouping of the 11 scriptures we just used earlier, some of those were actually prophetic verses. Now, this is going to be like a pre-kindergarten explanation of prophecy. Now, if you're looking for my explanation of prophecy to be deep and profound, well, you're not going to find it here. <laughs> prophecy, in a nutshell, is where something is spoken that hasn't happened yet, and it happens later on. And like I said, I'm sure there's a way better explanation for that. But, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of what it is. The book of Revelations is a prophetic book because it's telling of things that haven't happened yet, but will happen. Now, I haven't studied the book of Revelation much, so I'm not saying there may not be some things in there that haven't already happened. I mean, I could take like a week or two weeks or a month to really dive into it to be able to definitively say whether it's all future stuff or, you know, what the ratio is, but I'm just not going to do that, okay? Hopefully you get the point with what I'm saying because I'm just trying to share that it's a prophetic book. Now, the book of Daniel. Now, I haven't studied that book either in great detail, but a good portion of that book was and is a prophetic book. And I don't know what percentage of things in there have already happened and what things have not, but still need to be fulfilled. You know, I don't know that. But again, I'm just trying to point out there are some things in there that it's a prophetic book. Same goes for the book of Isaiah, and there are more. Um, there's actually groupings of books in the Bible that fall under the category of major or minor prophets. But all I'm trying to point out is that there are prophetic things that can be spoken that as of yet haven't been fulfilled, but one day they will be. So as we're discussing the sovereignty of God and whether or not everything God wants to happen happens and whether or not God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it, does God have limitations? 
So in regards to what God wills to happen, ultimately coming to pass, yes, I do believe that God's ultimate plans will come to pass. You know, one example of this I'm referring to is the catching away of the church. You know, otherwise it's known as the rapture. You know, I believe that that will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Another is that for the devil and all those who chose not to receive the free gift of righteousness, that God will one day uphold their decision and send them all to hell to spend eternity separated from him. So something I want to point out is that God's not the one damning everyone to hell. You know, he's simply enforcing the decision each individual has made. That's really important we understand that because yes, we're discussing the sovereignty of God, but the reason that's so important is because our view of God has the potential to be distorted, which ends up affecting the way that we love God, not the way that God loves us. I'm going to say that again. What God does is he upholds man's decision. Man has the dis- man and woman has the decision to either accept the free gift of righteousness or not accept the free gift of righteousness through Jesus. And so God enforces man and woman's decision that they make. But if we think that God is just damning people to hell and it's not based on their decision, that'll distort the way we look at God and it'll distort the way that we love God. It won't distort the way that God loves us because he loves us all. God doesn't predestine some to hell and the rest to heaven. So another end time thing that hasn't come to pass that ultimately will happen is how this earth as we know it will be destroyed and a new heaven will come down and the tribulation will take place. And and there's lots more, you know, but I'm just trying to give you a couple examples of what I'm kind of referring to. My point is I do believe that what God ultimately has said will come to pass. However, to try and piggyback off of that and say that, see, everything God wants to happen happens and that his will always comes to pass and that God has zero limitations. Well, I think I've shared more than enough scripture over the last seven episodes on the sovereignty of God, eight including this one, for me personally to at least feel confident that the Bible clearly refutes those statements. God didn't want robots. He gave us free will. And free will isn't really free will if God is controlling every decision we make. We have the choice to be obedient to his leading but ultimately, we're the one choosing. Now, there's an expression out there that says, like, God, take the wheel. <laughs> you know, like you're in a car and, you know, God's driving the car while you're just sitting in it. But God doesn't take the wheel. You know, we're the one driving the car. And he's right next to us in the passenger seat, giving us directions to his good and perfect and pleasing will for us. But he will never <laughs> reach over and take the wheel from us and, and control everything. You know, this isn't driver's ed. It's not a driver's ed car where there's two steering wheels in the front and God just sovereignly takes over at any time, not allowing us to go in the direction that we decide. He allows us to drive in the direction we choose. And here's something that's really awesome about God. He stays right there in the passenger seat with us when we take a wrong turn or turns, plural. You know, he doesn't just bail anytime we make a wrong turn. And, and you know, we could really get into... Some people feel that every time they sin, they lose their salvation. And that is just so inconsistent with Scripture. And it just keeps us in bondage if we think that, oh, I've got to go rededicate my life to God. And I mean, how many times can you rededicate your life to God before you break your rededicator? (laughs) You know? But anyways, God sticks right there with us, even when we make a wrong turn because we ignored His prompting. God's like a GPS where when we make a bad turn, He just says, recalculating (laughs) or recalculating. (laughs) This is is corny, but I know this makes me think of the movie Office Space where like uh, at the beginning where that main guy is going into his job and he just hears that lady in the background saying, corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking, just a moment. (laughs) Anyway, some of you, you know, people around my age may have may have seen that. But yeah, God is just like a GPS and he just recalculates every time we make a wrong turn. Now, he knows that we're going to make that wrong turn, but he doesn't pull over and pull the wheel and, and you know, it's just not what he does. He just sits there right with you and you make the wrong turn and he turns all things for the, for the good. And that's another scripture we brought up before, but he turns all things for the good for those who are called according to his purpose when we decide to get back in line with, you know, his plan for us and he 
turns a situation that was terrible. You know, we talked about abortion earlier. God will take a situation that's not a good situation and who knows, maybe you might be someone that ends up helping other ladies that are thinking about that decision, about thinking about they don't have any hope. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? You know, and you can come alongside them. You know, I don't know what it'll look like, but he can use hurts in your and my life and turn them into opportunities for him to help other people and to get the glory out of it. Because, I mean, that's ultimately why I'm talking about the sovereignty of God. That's why I'm so passionate about it. Because my dad died when I was eight in a car accident. My da- my sister died when I was 15 uh, from cancer. My parents got divorced when I was four. I had friends. I had like three different occasions in my life where like friends turned on me. Um, like my best friends turned on me in uh, like a young age, then in like middle school and then in high school like friends that I hung out with all the time. And so why am I bringing that up is because like, I thought God did those things for a reason. Like he wanted those things in my life. And, and there's more stuff, you know, I'm not trying to get this into a pity party because, you know, all those things that happened in my life or decisions I made, I could, I could tell you about all the drugs I did and all the the dumb decisions I made. And, and just, I mean, I got lots of stupid stuff, but that's not who I am. Okay. I, I am, I am, I am the righteousness of Christ. As he is in heaven, so am I in this world right now. I am wholly righteous and blameless. And I know some of us may choke on that stuff, but just just keep listening, okay? It's not me in my flesh. It's me in the spirit. My born-again spirit is the same spirit I'm going to have in heaven. I'm not going to get to heaven and get a new spirit, okay? My spirit right now is ounce for ounce, molecule for molecule, as perfect as it'll ever be. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit living inside me. But again, kind of getting on a, off. And, and at some point, I don't know when, probably after I do this this series on the sovereignty of God, you know, at some point, my idea is to do uh, at least a single episode, if not a series on uh, spirit, soul, and body and trying to explain that a little bit. So again, God just recalculates and he gets us going. Well, we have to make the decision. But when we decide to turn the wheel and to go in the right direction, you know, God's just right there. He, he's always there with us. It's all good. You don't lose your salvation every time you sin. <laughs> but ultimately, God knows how it'll all plan out. But that doesn't mean he wants you to take a wrong turn. Okay, that's not his will for your life. It wasn't his will for those people to sacrifice their children to idols. Okay, to throw their own kids in fire. That wasn't his will. So all that being said, let's take a look at whether or not God is limited. Because I've said that several times. So if if I'm going to make that bold of a statement and say that God is limited, well, you better have a couple more, you know, you better have some scriptures to back that up. So let's just take a look at this. Now, where in the Bible could we possibly see an example where God Almighty is limited? And this is ultimately why we took a quick little detour to talk about prophecy. So how did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke them into existence. And you can go back to Genesis and you can read about it. But nothing was created, even the heavens and the earth. God had to speak it. He had to speak forth and then those things came into existence. God's words not only created heaven and earth, but he also created the things in it. He created Adam with his words. He created all the things in the gardens with his words, the animals with his words the fish in the sea with his words, the light with his words, okay? Everything was created with God's words. And just like God made Adam and all of creation by his words, God needed a human being bold enough to speak forth that God in the form of man would come to earth. And we find that in Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what Emmanuel means is God with us. So it took roughly 4,000 years from when the fall of man took place, and that was when Adam and Eve sinned and ate the fruit and sin entered the world, for someone to be in such fellowship with God to speak what Isaiah did and prophesy that the Lord God would come from a virgin birth. Now, cool thing was, Isaiah spoke this about 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. And why is that cool? Is because he actually never lived to see it. You know, (laughs) he died before it actually came to pass, but he still spoke it. He was inspired by God. So here's a couple other scriptures that support Jesus was limited, quote unquote limited. 
Psalm 22:16. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Here it is. They pierce my hands and my feet. So this is talking about Jesus. This is prophetic. David is writing this about Jesus. Zechariah 12:10 says, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Okay? And what is this talking about? Well, it's talking about how they pierced Jesus' side. And, you know, I honestly, I don't know if, if it's talking about his hands and his feet because all those, those were nailed. I mean, yeah, that's being pierced with a nail. So I don't know if it's specifically talking about the spear in Jesus' side or, or the nails. But anyways, it's talking about Jesus. So why are these verses significant in relation to God being, quote unquote, limited? Well, because the method of capital punishment in the form of crucifixion wasn't even invented until the Romans were in power. So Jesus had to wait until the time when crucifixion was a practice being used or else he wouldn't have been able to fulfill these scriptures that were spoken. Again, we're talking about is God limited? Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, I'm going to read that again, that in, and here it is, the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So where it says the dispensation of the fullness of the times, this implies that God was limited in what he could do. He had to wait till the fullness of times had come. He couldn't just do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. Now, I believe me, I I know it may sound blasphemous to say that God was and currently still is limited. But that's because God actually chose to limit himself. So let's take a look at some scriptures that talk about that. Psalm 89, 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So basically we can take from that, that if God says something, he doesn't go back on it. I'm sure we can all agree that God isn't a liar. Hebrews 1, 3. And in that verse, it says, upholding all things by the word of his power. So we just got done talking about how it was God's spoken word that created the heavens and the earth. So this verse is saying that very same spoken word from God Almighty that upholds all things. Everything is held together by God's word. So if God were to try and ever take back his word, which we know he won't do because we just read in Psalm 89 that he doesn't break his covenant, But if he ever did, everything as we know it would fall apart. Why? Because he upholds all things by his spoken word. So here's another verse that backs that up. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? (laughs) And I just want to highlight one little thing there. The last word there is, he, will he not make it good? It doesn't say, will he not make it bad? Okay. Good God, bad devil. Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Now them is speaking of man. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28 through 29. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you, okay, this is God speaking, See, I, God, have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you, mankind, it shall be for food. So God chose to give man dominion over the world. And this, again, is why we brought up prophecy and how in order for Jesus to come into the form of man, it took another human to speak forth God's redemptive purpose. And we won't go into that in great detail, but in part three of the Sovereignty of God series, we discuss how God doesn't violate his word. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. I think it'd be really good for you. But God put into place the system where man had dominion over the earth. Now, with the fall of man, and that's where sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve, which we're referring to mankind, gave over their God-given authority to the devil. And how did they do that? Because they didn't listen to God. They ate of the, the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, one of the things Jesus did when he came to earth and ultimately when he entered hell on our behalf, he took back the keys of authority from the devil. And that's found in Revelations. Now, Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father and he again has given authority back to the church. And let me clarify, the church is not a building. It's not the four walls. It's you and I. We're to be Jesus' hands and feet. We're to operate in spiritual authority and dominion. And that's why understanding the sovereignty of God is so important. Because if we think God is the one controlling what happens, we'll as a result become passive. And that word right there, passive, is so big. Because, again, I know I'm just saying it again, what I just said, but if we think God is the reason why we have cancer come against us or we have any type of sickness and disease and stuff like that, if we think God is the reason why those things happen, we'll become passive and we won't fight against them. And if that were the case, then why would God give us the armor of God? You know, why would he tell us to submit to God? Why would he tell us to resist the devil and he would flee? You know, why would he do that? Why would he tell us to let not our heart be troubled? Because when he said, let not your heart be troubled to his disciples right before he's about to be crucified, that implied that they had a choice. And why would God tell us to do something if we had no choice? He wouldn't do that. Okay. So when we don't know that we can fight against the schemes of the devil, we become passive. And in a sense, we are permitting it to happen because we're not actively fighting against it. So yes, God is limited and he can't just do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. Now, let me say something. God could, okay? God could do whatever. He, he is almighty. He is, I mean, nothing was in existence and he spoke it and everything that we can see, mankind, everything that we know uh, on this earth that we can sense with our five senses is because God put it into existence, okay? So, so could God do anything? Well, he could, but that would go against the system that he has put in place and he will never violate his word. Here's a couple more scriptures that have been used to try and say that God controls everything and does whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Okay, well, yes, our God still is in heaven and yes, he does whatever he pleases. But here's the thing. It pleased, quote-unquote pleased, like that scripture said, it pleased God to give authority over to mankind to reign and rule over this world. <laughs> it, that, that was what pleased God, was to give man the keys of authority at that time. Now, we were just in Psalm 115, and that was in verse 3, but you got to keep reading, because if you get down to verse 16, it even says, the heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but... The earth he has given to the children of men. <laughs> so, I mean, we can't just stop at verse 3. We got to keep reading. Psalm 135, 6 through 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Again, yes, God does whatever he wants to do. And what he wanted to do was to set up a system where he must flow through people. Why? Because he gave authority to mankind, but more specifically now to the body of Christ, the church. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Now, just as a little heads up, the verses leading up to this are talking about idolatry. How someone, and specifically how someone has taken gold, hires a goldsmith, makes it into a quote, small G God. They set it in a spot. The thing doesn't move and people still lay on their faces worship, worshiping it even though they know that they made it and it was just a, a clump of a gold, but they formed it into something and God says that it, it won't save them, but they still worship it. So 46, 9 through 10 in Isaiah, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. So I want to just interject something. Yes, God does know how it all play out. I'm not disputing that God knows how everything is going to happen. He does know the end from the beginning. So let's continue. And from ancient times, things that are to yet be done. So let me interject something else. So he's describing prophecy here. Okay, let's continue saying, 
My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So how from that does someone pluck out where it says declaring the end from the beginning and I will do all my pleasure and turn that into whatever God wants to do, he does it whenever he wants to do it. Well, again, it happens because there isn't an understanding of the new covenant that you and I are in right now. Okay, this scripture is from Isaiah, but we are in the new covenant. So because it says declaring the end from the beginning and I will do all my pleasure, when we don't know what the scope of the Bible is saying in relation to the new covenant, we can become confused. Daniel 4, verse 34, and the latter part of that verse, verse B, through 35. For his dominion, and we're talking about God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And here it is. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? So what's interesting about this book, and more specifically this chapter, is that this book is written by Daniel, but this chapter is written by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth at that time, and he also was a pagan idol worshiper. And Daniel thought enough about what Nebuchadnezzar said to allow an entire chapter about him to be put into the book of Daniel. And actually, the entire chapter is written by Nebuchadnezzar. So there's all sorts of crazy things that happen leading up to this point, one of which was what brought Nebuchadnezzar to this moment of clarity where his understanding came back to him. Nebuchadnezzar had just spent seven years crawling the earth like an animal. His hair grew and was like eagle's feathers. His nails grew like bird's claws, and he ate grass like an oxen. Now, if you know the story, God was the one that made that happen, okay? And so you might be thinking, well, see, God did that. Well, we are in the new covenant, okay? This is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But that leads us to our scripture, which I didn't read the first part of it, but we will now. So verse 34 through 35, I'm going to read it again, but I'm not going to leave off that first part of 34. And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? So then he goes on to praise the true king of heaven. So again, back to God's will and how the extreme sovereignty of God tries to take these scriptures and say that everything God wants to happen, happens. Is God the most high God? Yes. Is his dominion an everlasting dominion? Yes. Is his kingdom from generation to generation? Yes. But when you really think about it, for a secular or pagan king to have this kind of revelation of who God is, this is awesome. And it's clearly God inspired that this was written. But this brings us to the main point. Does he do according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth? Yes. Can anyone restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No, they can't. But here's the thing. God is so above all that he, because of the system he chose to put in place of giving mankind authority on earth, he, according to his will, chose to restrain his own hand. That was God's choice. Satan didn't trick or twist God's arm to give mankind authority on earth. He, God, made the choice to create things back in Genesis that way, and he called it good. And now after the fall of man, Jesus came was murdered and resurrected and took back the keys of authority like we already discussed. And now, we're his hands and feet, and God, by his own choice, which you could almost say he chose to restrict himself, has to flow through us. Why? Because that was his will. That's the way he wanted it. So he put that into place. Last on the topic of is God limited, I want to show that we have the potential to limit God in our lives. Psalm 78, 40-41 How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. So this is referring to the Israelites when they saw what God did for them against Egypt, the signs he did for them in the wilderness, and they still didn't heed his voice. And that was in Numbers 14, 22. 
So the Israelites, they limited God, and so can we. It's our choice whether we reject God's good and perfect and pleasing plan for each one of our lives. So in relation to the extreme sovereignty of God, is God limited? Yes. But that's not because he doesn't have the outright ability, quote-unquote ability, to do whatever he wants. It's because he sets systems in place that if he were to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, it would violate or break the words he spoke. And he is not like man that he would lie. So he will not break his words. (laughs) And thank God he doesn't because everything we know would fall apart. And again, I know this can be challenging. (laughs) I know to have this idea of God and how he is and for me to come along and and share some of these things. I mean, I don't think you can dispute that I'm, I'm sharing scripture and I'm doing the best I can to not take scripture and make it say what I want it to say. And I hope you can hear that. I'm trying to go when I get a scripture that has been used to support the extreme sovereignty of God. I'm going way back before it and I'm trying to read what what it's talking about so that when it gets to that verse, it's in the proper context. And then I don't stop once I get to the verse. I keep on reading. And if I don't, if I'm not bringing additional scriptures of before and after when I bring it up in this podcast, it's because for what we're talking about, for time's sake, it doesn't take away from what we're we're reading because there's no reason for me to go back and read two chapters before and then read two chapters after because you know, yes, if it if it changed the meaning of the verse that we're looking at, then yes, it is very important. And I believe in part four of this series, uh, we're going to go in the book of Romans and we're going to look at a scripture that has been used to support the extreme sovereignty of God. And as I was going backwards and I was uh, trying to get an idea of the context of it, I came across another thing that has been used in the extreme sovereignty of God. Then I kept going back and I found a couple more. And when you go back, actually we're going to be in chapter 11 in, in verse in Romans. If you go all the way back to 9, you can actually get the context of it and you read through it and, and it's all just one. Even though it's over the course of chapters 9, 10, 11, it all comes together. It's one complete thought um, because it is a letter. It's, you know, just because they're in different chapters doesn't mean they're different thoughts. And so it makes more sense when you read it in its context. So again, I understand when what's being said challenges what we believe and and our idea of, of how God is and, and how things are. But I just want to encourage you, man, don't go by what I see. Let the word define what you believe and what what God says about who he is because at the end of the day what did I say at the beginning this is about understanding God and his character his nature his grace and his mercy and the goal is for us to get freed up okay because God doesn't want bad things for you okay he's not the reason for it thanks for listening and join us again next time on the abundance podcast